No, I was just thinking that I had other stuff I was thinking about saying, but I'd agree with Javier. (laughs) (laughs) I fully fully agree with Javier. And that's the first time I can say that I could do that. Welcome back to the What's Our Verdict TV podcast, where we fashion ourselves television judge and jury. My name is JJ Crowder. I'm here with my co-hosts, Mattson Heiner. Better red than dead. Javier Ortiz. What is up, my nerds? Ian Anderson. Some shit. And we have a very special guest host today, Nicole Ortiz. What's up, guys? All right. So before we get started, if you haven't already, be sure to hit that subscribe button, share with a friend, helps us grow the podcast. Also, make sure to go and check out our sister podcast, What's Our Verdict Movies, where we review and cast our verdict on your favorite movies. Today, we're going to be reviewing the miniseries Waco which is available now on Netflix. It was released in January of 2018. It tells the story of the Waco, Texas tragedy that occurred in 1993. Today's review will cover episodes one, two, and three, and next week we'll cover uh, and conclude with episodes four, five, and six. So we will go through each episode, um, give a quick synopsis of that episode, and then we'll discuss it. Yeah, so let's jump right in, guys. Uh, episode one is takes place nine months before the Waco siege. Uh, David Koresh preaches to his branch Davidians at the Mount Carmel Center about what joy is. Afterwards, he and a few of his followers perform a cover band as a cover band at a bar with where Koresh meets David Thibodeau. Uh, Judy Snyder, one of Koresh's many wives, learns she's pregnant with his child. This puts her at odds with Steve, her true husband, and Koresh's right-hand man. Meanwhile, Gary Noshner... Nosner, head of the FBI Crisis Negotiation Unit, is assigned to Ruby Ridge to help defuse the standoff there. Six months later, the ATF is criticized for the way the Ruby Ridge case was handled, and Nosner holds some concerns about the written report which paints Mitch Decker, an FBI agent who Nosner believes acted poorly in the handling of the situation, in a positive light. The ATF receives word that a shipment of weapons is bound for Mount Carmel and begins surveillance on the compound. So let's talk about episode one. Who wants to kick us off? I think we should have our special guest, Nicole, kick us off. I think that's a great idea. I'm happy to. Um, Javier said that you guys were watching this for the podcast and he's like, do you want to watch it with me? And I was like, yeah, sure. We'll just like have it going on in the background. And like, seriously, like the first five minutes, I was like, this is so captivating. Like what's going on? Who are these people? What are they doing? Yeah. So I think when there are docuseries, because I've watched a couple of kind of similar docuseries where there is a group of people who If you just hear the description of kind of what they are, you're like, well, that's weird. There's probably some crap going on there that's like not good. We're going to keep eyes on these people. (laughs) I'm always really interested to see what their side of the story is and like kind of see what their belief system is. And then, of course, there's the awesome conversation and dialogue about, you know, freedom of religion and and like even on the line of cult and whether government should be involved with things like that. And so... Yeah, I would say that this first episode definitely reeled me into the storyline for sure. You know what's so frustrating? <laughs> what's that? Dive in. Is is that there is no problem for like police officers or law enforcement to survey American citizens, but as soon as a politician is surveyed, it's it's a scandal. It's like it's like breaking the media scandal. We've got like Watergate and now we've got Trump claiming Obamagate, which is worse than Watergate. So where's all this like zeal and pomp when it comes to the FBI or the NSA overstepping their bounds? Riddle me that. 
<laughs> Riddle me that. I hope we get a, a tweet from Donald Trump after he listens to this. Maybe we'll get your response there, Javier. Because <laughs> he definitely listens. <laughs> after he listens to it. Yeah. He's a weekly listening. I bet he does, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Javier brings up a great point. For me, one of the sticking points of episode one was just how they painted Ruby Ridge and these people up in the mountains. Obviously, were there some shady things they were doing? Maybe. But it seemed like the government was overstepping their bounds, entrenching upon some of their rights. And then it's juxtaposed with the Branch Davidians in Waco, where they just seem like a a peaceful institution. But there's some of this gun stuff. There's rumors about child abuse, probably from disgruntled past members. And yet the ATF looks at it as a way to reverse the bad publicity they had from the Ruby Ridge event and looks to kind of seek revenge on that through a different group. And that's what really was interesting to me from the first episode is, kind of what Javier talked about, how does the government get the the liberty to do that? Uh, it seems just kind of unfair. If they want to start surveillance on you and start ruining your life and interrupting it, go right ahead. That's what they did. Zero consequences. Yeah, I think there's, I, I, I wouldn't say that I know a ton about like law enforcement laws and things besides what I've seen on various TV shows. But I feel like in a lot of things that I've watched, there's always this shit, this almost equally shadiness of of a government entity or whatever law enforcement officer wants to get knows at least they feel like they know they're doing some shady stuff and they personally believe they should be in jail but they'll do all this shady stuff to to get them into jail even if that means they're not going through the proper channels or they're trumping or there's trumping up these charges that they can get them uh, accused of or yeah, right. Free Joe Exotic, right? Right. Hi, similar to Joe Exotic, right? I mean, he Gee, did some shady things that charges. probably should be in jail, but they, yeah, like I don't know. I feel like, especially in this case, where they thought that they might have some maybe illegal, illegally, like I think they're modifying these guns. That that might be the case that they were going a. a all of like that I think what they did to go around it definitely as it progressed but even in the very beginning it was equally as shady as what the possible shadiness of the gun situation does that make sense yeah because I'm religious I have guns and I have food storage the only difference between me and the Davidians is that I haven't modified my guns but you're telling me if I put like a bump stock on my AR-15 the difference is you haven't broken the law (laughs) I mean, I still don't think that they knew that the Davidians broke the law. But you're telling me that if I put a bump stock on my I'm on my AR-15 that it gives the federal government the right to come in and shoot my wife and burn down my house? I don't yeah, I'm. I'm just- that sounds pretty simplified. I will say, just in reading more about this, there definitely was a lot that they didn't focus on with David Koresh, especially uh, leading into this years prior to this, uh, what was happening in the documentary. He was acquitted on murder charges. So there definitely was some backstory uh, where he he was not he was acquitted yes he was acquitted but when you say there was nothing but if you're in the government agency and you'd seen it yeah they can't they can't trial him on the same thing are we in the business of of targeting people who've been acquitted for crimes yeah is that what we do Uh, i mean that's kind of you kind of keep tabs on those people yeah my my question though is 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 that the atf's job 
to keep eyes on people who have murdered, possibly murdered people, but who definitively was not if, charged if the, for yeah, murder. If our system is totally flawless, who who did not, but was thought to have murdered someone, is that the ATF's job? I mean, if we're gonna go on the definitively not charged for murder, are you saying that OJ didn't kill and he he just? I mean, I mean that's a. He wasn't charged. But I'm I, saying OJ I, was definitively not charged for murder. Oh no, he was definitively charged, but I he mean, was not. A, he I was mean, acquitted. He was found not guilty. There's a big difference. He was charged, as was David Koresh. They were both. They were both charged. They were both went through a trial, but they were acquitted and found not guilty. Which that is their right. That's how our system works. If I called the police right now, I was like, I'm pretty sure Matson's got a dude in his basement, just some body down there. <laughs> they would fucking arrest you, and then you would be acquitted because there's no body there. Should we keep tabs on you? I don't know. I think for this particular situation, I I think that like a, a major because you're right, Matson, that there is like a lot of history and backstory that we don't know about the the Davidians. Like the way that they were portrayed was that was that 100% founded in reality. Maybe there are things there that were a little bit more shady that we didn't see or that might have been, you know, true. Um, so there is that. But I think one big thing, whether or not those were, you know, those things that happened were totally accurate for them is whether the alcohol tobacco and firearms is they're very specialized right the atf should be there thinking that oh yeah we can get them on maybe those guns and we're gonna let, let out all those kids and we're gonna pump up and say that they were being abused and things like that i think that one that's like a really big issue for me is like no matter what those people have done is it your jurisdiction to be there to keeping eyes on people when you're like literally the only thing that they may have some shadiness in that it falls under your umbrella is firearms. So you should focus on that. And and if you don't have anything substantial for, for firearms, then you need to get out of there, right? So that's kind of a big thing for me. Yeah, so there was a lot of weird stuff that happened with that. We are getting a little ahead of ourselves, though. Yeah, we yeah. should be talking about Idaho, right? We should Ruby be talking about Ruby River, yeah. yeah, or Ruby Ridge, yeah. Ooh, Ruby River, I could go for some steak right now. <laughs> I know. See, I haven't eaten dinner yet, so that's all I was thinking about. <laughs> I thought it was really cool in this episode, showing because you know later on, uh, Nosner, um, and that storyline and and the Davidian storyline matches up. I think it's really cool that in the first episode they really are following like those two books and I really want to read them because they're based off of the book that Nosner wrote and Thibodeau wrote um, Thibodeau's being you know the survivor of of Waco and, and his experience with the Davidians and the Nosner's experience in negotiating and his experience with Waco I think it's really cool that they started off kind of following the narrative of those two books and then eventually those two those the storyline of those two books meet up because they both talk about the Waco incident. So I think it was really cool how they started out with those two storylines because they, at first, you could tell that they're doing two different things, but it really builds up to the foundation of the relationship that they have later on in the series. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I really like the way that they introduced all of the, they used this episode to introduce all of the parts to this show, right? The mm -hmm. main characters that are going to drive, whether it be, and I really, Michael Shannon, from the beginning David Nosner's character, man, he does such a great job of 
playing this guy that's trying to do the right thing within an organization that obviously has some rough edges that it needs to work out and is really at this time in the middle of a transitional period like they talk about in a later episode. But it's, you know, he's trying to maintain and keep people alive on both sides and make sure everything's done the right way. So I really like the way they set him up. And then on the flip side, of course, they show a certain side of, of Koresh, you know, starting out with this his morning run with his son and then, you know, very charismatic guy while he's preaching to the, you know, to his congregation. So I, I really like the way they lay, on the, lay the groundwork for the rest of this series in that they pay so much attention to the people that this whole thing hinges on. Yeah, the two the two leads for this documentary were amazing. I I was blown away. Taylor, what's how do you say his last name? Taylor Kitsch, if I'm saying that correctly, he comes from Friday Night Lights, the TV show. I love him in that. This is the best acting for performance I've ever seen him in. He just he, I believed his role. I I felt like what he was saying as David Koresh was believable to me. I loved his southern drawl, and then on the other side of it, Michael Shannon as nose nerd. It just the emotional depth and the morality of the decisions that he had along with um, David Koresh. I thought both actors really did a great job in this first episode. And that's what kept me wanting to watch more because it just felt like we were watching what was actually happening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What'd you think, Ian? Yeah. Ian, tell us your thoughts. Thoughts for your thoughts. Thoughts for your thoughts. Um, I really like Gary Nesner's character. My understanding, I can't remember if I read this or not, but I don't think he was actually at Ruby Ridge. Um, but I like that they start us there. And as well as like we get to follow his character through the entire series, because I feel like he's the one that you can identify with. And he's the seeker of truth, or at least I haven't read that watched the whole series yet. So based on what I've seen so far and kind of starting out in that first episode is he's somebody that everybody can identify with that tries to tout this middle ground of like this rogue agency that's breaking its own laws or whatever else. Like I, I'm not going to get too much into that. We've already done that as well as (laughs) I know Javier would love it. Yeah. But um, I think they do a good job of making him fairly neutral and allowing you to identify with him throughout the, the telling of the story, um, which I think was really smart. And is it Michael Shannon? Is that his name? Yep. Uh, the actor. I think he does an excellent job. He's I've seen him in a few other things and really enjoy so far what I've seen of him in Waco. Yeah, he's cool. He's like the voice of reason, I think, throughout the whole series. Let's not forget a truly appropriate FBI agent name, Mitch Decker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The enforcer. I mean, once I I didn't know that was his like name. That's so appropriate. I'm like, yeah, I can see that. It also Little speaks dick. volumes to his personality. <laughs> he acts like a Mitch Decker. <laughs> yeah, that's true. A Decker's tool. a home wrecker. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And Shea Wiggum, the actor that plays Mitch Decker, does a great job. Makes you just want to hate his ass the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Oh, he's a actually hated him for sure. Yeah, which is rough. It, it's yeah, it's easy to do, but I actually thanks to him. Like I was so pissed that I looked up to see if any of those agents went to prison, and guess what? They didn't because the federal <laughs> government is a sham. 
Oh my goodness. And bringing us back to episode. Their social media so we could cyber bully them. But <laughs> it didn't work out. I wanted, I wanted to ask the group because one of the other big uh, plot points of episode one was obviously um, as JJ read with Steve and his wife, Judy, uh, where it seemed like they were trying to get pregnant for quite some time and it never happened in, in their marriage. They became Branch Davidians. And then Judy is obviously one of David's wives. And then voila, they have, they're going to have a child. And that whole issue of, I mean, for me, I'm putting myself in that shoes. I've not had a kid yet or anything, but I, I, I think that'd be real hard. And I feel like I'd have major problems or at least have a lot to work through mentally and spiritually to come to a conclusion that made sense for me because I feel like I'd just be pissed. That's one thing I could not relate to. And like, I consider myself a devout Christian, but if my religion suddenly told me that the only person that could have sex with my wife is the leader of the church, I would no longer be a devout Christian. I would. That definitely, like, at least for us, sparked a really interesting conversation about like, religion and what we well, like how far you would go for your beliefs and not very far, and, uh, not very far. <laughs> also like how how we might define like a cult which is which was a interesting conversation to have what, what do you guys think like if you put your shoes in your feet in those shoes matt and you just said did that like spark any ideas or thoughts for any of you guys that conversation because it for it yeah it did for us for sure I just, I feel like Steve is the character I feel the most for in this series, at least the episodes that I've seen so far, because I don't know how on earth he doesn't just like haul off and hit David sometimes like there. And I, I don't, I, I couldn't do it. I could not do what Steve does. I, like you guys kind of said, I'm, uh, my beliefs wouldn't extend that far. <laughs> so I don't know. Hey, look, I've stepped away for religion for far less than that. So <laughs> there's there's no way in hell that I would even not a chance. Like I said, there, yeah, that's an extreme level, and it, it's one of those things that when I watch on television, so I know there's a lot of cases where they're setting you up to like these characters, and you want to feel for them because the end of the day they're human beings and you know there's shitty things happening across the board to so many people in this situation and i'm sure that this show can't even remotely explain the level of these actual atrocities on both sides across the board in real life but when i watch something like that and this isn't the only show or only movie that shows something like this happening like i literally see that and it makes me nauseous to think about someone one having the ability to look themselves in the mirror and say, yeah, I'm the only guy in this household that can have sex with women and I'm saving everyone else from eternal damnation by doing it. You can go fuck yourself, first of all. Or is it like the passions of the flesh or whatever? Uh, yeah, seriously. When he's telling Thibodeau that, I'm like, dude, I, I'd be like, well, see yeah. you later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's nice knowing you. Yeah. And then on top of that, like, and to me, like, I look at these people and I want to feel bad for these guys, but I also like Steve, I want to feel bad. Hey, that's a terrible situation. But I'm like, you agreed to it. Like, yeah. And you stayed. So there's a point. Your wife asked you to leave. Yeah. Just leave. Yeah. I feel like I'm rooting for him to leave the entire time. Like, I know it doesn't, but that's what I keep rooting for. Just leave, Steve. And there's a level of sympathy that goes away from me because of that. Like, I, 
I think that they kind of, I think they did a pretty good job at, you know, making you feel sympathy for um, all of those, all of the Davidians and understanding that you write, they're like, they're humans and they're not just freak weirdos who are out there, you know, just like on LSD abusing kids or whatever that the media might have said about them to really see them as humans and kind of come to respect their choices and that, that they're totally sober um, you know, individuals who believe what they believe. But th- I think having that conversation in there, I think was a good little tidbit to kind of give you insight into the, the struggles that they had, the interpersonal struggles that they had, that it wasn't just all sunshine and rainbows, that they really felt like they were really sacrificing because they believed, they truly believed that he was the Messiah. And so I thought that it kind of gave you kind of the right attitude of, yes, we are kind of on their side. We believe in them, but also, yeah, we, the document docuseries isn't trying to make it out like they were totally fine and everyone was happy and everything was perfect there. And anything that was done to them was just absolutely an atrocity, which as we go on, they were, but they did show that it wasn't all hundred percent perfect there. Yeah. And then let's wrap up episode one, talking about the fact that, and you've already mentioned it a little bit. I think Nicole talked about it. The fact that the ATF, and I don't know how much of it's true. I could definitely see it from a human perspective where the ATF agents in charge were like, hey, we need a recovery from what happened on Ruby Ridge. We're being blamed for it, which, yeah, you should be. But at the same time, we need something to make us look better. And they find out that this shipment of guns is headed to the Koresh facility to the Davidians. And so now they are able to say, we want to put, you know, these agents in place in order to surveil and make sure and see what we can figure out. And then of course it was compounded by all the rumors that were going along with Mount Carmel. So woofty, it's crazy what the government can do, right? All you need is a shipment of guns going to your place. Disgusting. Or just a phone call from Javier. <laughs> and I guess I'm in trouble. Yeah. All right. So episode two, with his surveillance team, ATF agent Jacob Vasquez disguises himself as a rancher or himself as a rancher and befriends David Koresh. Branch Davidians to investigate where the weapons are stashed and to find out their true intentions. However, Steve already has some suspicions about their new neighbors. Koresh suggests that David Thibodeau marry Michelle as a way to ward off the state's child services. The wedding proceeds and Vasquez tries to blend in. Gary Nosner plans on filing a complaint against fellow agent Mitch Decker for his behavior on the Ruby Ridge case. As it continues to haunt Nosner, he looks to his wife for consolation and advice to help him stop second-guessing his decisions. The Waco Tribune Herald releases an article painting David Koresh as a sinful messiah, which doesn't sit too well with Rachel, Steve, and Koresh himself. After the Davidians are tipped off and Vasquez's cover is blown, Koresh instructs him to stop the raid, but it's all in vain when ATF agents in transit ignore his pleas. Episode 2. So... I'll kick it off. I have actually clicked on, I, I read that Waco Tribune Herald and Javier and Nicole, that's where I, I've learned for the first time some of the backstory of that, where this documentary doesn't go into where I was like, oh, well, he's definitely been a part of some things that aren't like great. Uh, so that was interesting to me because part of what I struggle with with this documentary is uh, I felt like David Koresh was much more likable and down the earth and believable maybe maybe he really was like that but that's the kind of the sense i was starting to get in these initial episodes and upon reading that that article was interesting to me to just to find out well he was acquitted on on murder charges and you certainly wouldn't have known that if you just watched this documentary by itself and that kind of changed my viewpoint just a little bit that added a little bit more of a twist for me i actually think this part of the series was kind of the weakest part because jacob 
actually is the only character that's not real in the whole series. So, so they make him up. And I think you can kind of tell because it felt a little clunky. Like Nicole mentioned while we were watching when um, David comes and knocks on the door, he's like, what do you guys do here? He's like, oh, uh, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're ranchers. Like you guys didn't come up with a game plan here. You're like 200 yards away from his front door. You didn't think that he would come say hi. What's wrong with you? Well, I thought that was like, it was a real character. They just renamed him. Wasn't that like Robert Rodriguez or whatever his name was? Yeah, but I don't think it played the same role. I think it was like a group of like the surveillance happened, but I don't think like yeah. to the extent of like befriending him and all that. Oh, I guess that could be true. I just know, is this the, oh, I'll wait for the next episode to talk about that. Okay. Yeah, you're not wrong though, Ian. This this was a, well, neither of you are. It was, there was true surveillance, but as far as everything that I've I've read, there was no one that went deep cover my understanding is the guy you were talking about rodriguez did actually infiltrate the home on a they invited him over he went in and tried to find the weapons but he only went and had dinner he was never given freedom to roam the home at all like you kind of see jacob start to do yeah be the women's caught. corridor what are you doing here yeah. uh yeah <laughs> the bathroom for looking for the looking for the chapel <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I also agree with you, Javier. It did feel, though I like, I love John Leguizamo uh, as an actor. I think he's amazing. And I think he played this character very well still. Had some humor to it. Brought a little lightheartedness to it, to a very, very heavy, uh, you know, six-episode miniseries. And yet still was able to show that he was, you know, starting to make friends with his family. This was also the first time that I felt like Gary Noser's character was just ballless. Right? Because he's like... He's like, I'm going to submit this complaint against Mitch Decker for essentially violating FBI rules of engagement and essentially murdering three people or whatever. And then Mitch like, Mitch is like, oh, don't forget this random piece of history that we have together where you convinced a dude to get shot. And then Gary's like, oh, that's a good point. I guess I won't report you then. I was like, are you kidding me? This is why there are people out there who don't believe that there are any good cops because if there were good cops, they would turn in and stop the bad cops. But no, they turn a blind eye for self-serving purposes. And that's exactly what Gary did. If he would just pony up and grow a pair, then we essentially maybe could have avoided some disaster at Waco, at least according to this docuseries. But. Yeah, that was kind of hard for me to watch at first. And then after, by the very end, kind of thinking back on it, where he his like morality is in the right place. And he, and I root for his viewpoint of things are broken. People are getting a slap on the wrist or moving on or not being, you know, justice is not being served in the way that it was people. This is not being resolved how it should be um, because innocent people have died. And so you, I agree with his morality, but I, but I was very disappointed in the beginning for in this episode when he kind of dropped it when, you know, I could, I can kind of sympathize with him and say, okay, I kind of understand why you didn't do that. And at the very end, that kind of that same situation rolls around and he reacts in the same way. And in the end, like, you know, you get so mad, but it, it, they have that there in the beginning, I think, to kind of show you how he reacts to those kinds of situations. And it was, yeah, he packs you know, up and goes home. He just gives up. It's like throws more complicated towel. than that, but like yeah. Bitch. But yeah, so then in the first, you know, in the beginning of this episode, <laughs> it's less intense, right? But, you know, 
anyway. I think it's hard. Like I, I definitely see where you're coming from, but I also feel for the man because I think in in similar situations, you know, I can't say that I haven't been in a situation where I said what someone was doing was wrong and even confront them about it. And all they have to do is bring up something that is going to put me in an embarrassing light or show me doing wrong. And I can I can't say that every time that's happened to me that I haven't gone. Never mind. I'm good. I'm not going to say anything because well, dude, you have that right. You're not law enforcement. I know, but just uh, here's the thing. And I know that we put a strong light on law enforcement and they're held to different standards than they should be in most situations, but they're still human. At the end of the day, they're still in the same situations. It's just more under a spotlight and there's more impact, which should should require more self-control and the ability to make sure that you're willing to take that hit. But that's their regular world and they're living in that. So I can't say that I 100% don't understand why, you know, if this situation actually happened and I, that Nosner would say, ah, you're right. And I'm sure it happens every day in law enforcement, right? Someone says, I'm going to turn you in because you did the wrong thing. Yeah, but you did the wrong thing in this situation. You're going to have that blowback too. It's still a human reaction to fight or flight, protect yourself in that situation. And it's hard to say that I can, I'm upset with it. I don't think they should, but I can't say that I wouldn't in the same situation. Not 100%. In the situation in this episode, it was definitely pretty easy for me to kind of forgive him for not like really like going superhero justice on that whole situation because of probably one of the major facts is that Javier pointed out to me that like this is like the very beginnings of negotiations of, of hostage negotiations. And I can't like in ima- the FBI in the FBI. Right. And I can't imagine that it's easy to convince a bunch of people who believe that the best way to to um, resolve hostage situations is to just go in full first force and say, look, you're going to surrender or or we're going to blow you to pieces because we have more firepower than you and get them to surrender. And so it can't be easy to convince people who have that mindset to say, no, if we just take a little bit of time, we can resolve this peacefully. So because of that situation... I can under I, that because of that majorly. I could see why it not only is it easier for him, but it's probably better for the future of hostage negotiations if he plays it cool, so that he can stay in the game and eventually help make more change in the peaceful negotiation side. Harder at the very end of the series, but we're not there yet. <laughs> some fair enough. Something different I wanted to talk about is this is the episode where uh, David Koresh, uh, rock star, long hair. Playing in a band, um, meets David Thibodeau, who becomes a, a key figure in this story and, and really in the real story. He's one of the individuals that writes a book, uh, one of the survivors. I just want to hear from the group like, once once you're David and you get to Mount Carmel, and I'm pretty sure they don't have running water, if I remember correctly. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. They don't have running yeah, water. They do not. They live in like the middle of nowhere. They're basically in like a, a plywood box uh, with a bunch of people. And to me, I'm like, man, there must have been a, something there that I just wasn't seeing that kept him or kept people there clearly. But I mean, I'm like, if I put myself in his shoes, I'm like, man, I, no, nah, man, I'm good. Like, I've got other things going on. I was just, I tried to put myself in his shoes and reflect on like, how easy would it be for me to just let my life go and go follow someone and live in these conditions and just do that? Like, it's just interesting Probably to think about. Probably that there was a cute girl. 
(laughs) which i'm sure and that's what they the netflix documentary shows yeah yeah i I think this episode's where he gets married it is but i get what you're saying is because yeah she's cute but she's also married to the messiah so like it's it doesn't take you very long to realize she's off limits (laughs) so no that's a totally valid question or is she or is she Ian, go ahead and mention what you mentioned a second ago. <laughs> yeah, this this is the episode where um, he gets married to Thibodeau. They met him in the first episode. Second episode is where Michelle and Thibodeau get married so that they can so cover up a crime. Cover, yeah, <laughs> yeah, two Matt. crimes, two, two, yeah, two, two. So, which is. I don't know, a little awkward to, I don't know. It, there's not, when I look at this movie, there's not a lot that points to the negative of the Davidians, except for maybe this, um, at least so far from what I've seen. So it's kind of interesting to see them work around kind of this potential issue. Um, I think it's also interesting. Does, does anybody know, is the lawyer character, was he an actual um, individual? Oh, the, the Harvard grad? Yeah. He was. Because I, was, I yes. think they did a really good job of explaining the situation by using his knowledge of law to us as an audience. So I thought that was really well, well done. I, I thought it was interesting that like, I, I don't remember if it was this episode. No, I think it's a later episode. But Gary makes the comment that he's like, it seems like everyone who calls themselves the Messiah always gets to have sex with young hmm. girls, right? <laughs> and um, I find it really interesting that this is the episode where you start questioning David, right? Like you start realizing that he's pretty selfish, right? And he's kind of self-righteous and, you know, he's kind of worried about what's going on. And it just kind of really like, what kind of man do you have to be to convince a group of people to let you have sex with their 12 year old daughter? She was 14. Oh, she was 14. But she was 12 when she had her first kid. Yeah. 14 was the other sister. Yeah. What? I thought she was 14 when no. she became his wife. She was 14 at this time. Mm-hmm. She was 12 when they first got married yeah. and she got pregnant with the little one. She was 14 at the time of this episode? There were there were two sisters though. Correct. She was 14 when she got married cuz that was the whole problem is they were they had two problems. In the state of Texas, you could get married under age with permission from your parent, which they had. What you couldn't do, so he was legal in marrying her, but he wasn't legal in marrying her and having a child with her because technically their marriage was void when Texas law of Polygamy. Multiple, a polygamy Multiple kicked wives, in. Yeah. So she was a second wife. Therefore, that marriage is null and void. Therefore, it was statutory rape. So because she had that child when she was 12 years old. Because uh, so I understand the issue. I just in my brain, I thought that they had were talking about her getting married to him when she was 14. And that was like five years ago or something like that. In the uh, episode. No. Oh, man. Uh, Yikes. So I just find that disgusting. Right. Like. Yeah. Oh yeah. Isn't it, isn't this the episode where they have that laundry scene with her older sister and doesn't no, she gets a few episodes later? Is that yeah. later? Yeah. I think so. A big one for me and something that when you were talking about Mattson is like when would you join up with this and live in the middle of nowhere? And this is I'm, I'm, I know I'm in the midst of a bunch of religious folks, so I might rub you the wrong way. But this this is literally an extreme version of mm-hmm why religion to me in general bothers the hell out of me. Oh yeah. Because yeah. And this is no joke to me. Like I think about religion and I go, 
obviously this is an extreme far out there version of this, but to me, all religion is like this. There are certain ways that you have to go in and change your lifestyle to meet the identified lifestyle that someone else, whoever it would be, has determined is the right way to live and the most fulfilling way to live. And what gets people to do that in my mind, and I've watched it time and time again, I live in a in a household of very religious people. I, my whole family is very religious with the exception of a few of us. But when I look at it, I go, this is religious religion at its core in that people cling to what makes them feel good and what helps them justify whatever it is. And, and I say justify, it's a harsh word, but whatever helps them understand that this is the way that they want to live. It makes them feel better. These are the things that make me better. And I am okay with that to a degree, right? I don't begrudge people their religion because it helps them live their day-to-day lives in a better way most of the time. In this situation, it's the same. So when I think of a David Thibodeau, he comes in, it's obvious he's had some issues with his parents. He's had issues with relationships in the past. And you get that in just that conversation in the first episode of him and Koresh sitting on the floor at this bar. And then he goes with him. He's looking for someone to give his life meaning. He goes to this place and it's this whole place where he sees people that are happy and fulfilled in their own way. And that he latches onto that because he's obviously missed that in his life. And in that point, when you get those things that are coming, there's a natural psychological chemical reaction that happens and your endorphins kick in and you start to go, this feels good. And then when you see the case of Steve, even starting in this episode where the fear of the ATF coming because they've started to realize that Jacob is an informed, you know, they're being surveilled. Even you can start to see the tension with Steve and you go, this is where they stick around because the fear of losing that happiness and that sense of fulfillment or whatever it is that's ingrained them to this place, they're afraid of losing it, which is why they stick around. It's it's bonkers to me, and I that's why I sit and I go I just can't that's why I can't get behind religion in general for me because I look at it that way as a whole. While I was watching this, I was actually thinking that the huge problem not not only in their religion but in pretty much any religion is this concept of blind faith or this idea that you should do something or believe in something or act a certain way because someone in authority told you that's what God said, right? Um, And that's something that I like vehemently disagree with. Like, I don't believe that that's how religion or God should work. I think that if a commandment is given something, even something small that changes the way, like you were saying, JJ, the way you live your life to adapt to that, to be what you believe is a better person, there needs to be a reason and needs to be backed by uh, an agreed upon authority like scripture or things like that. And um, you'll find that in my religion. You'll find that in the Davidians religion that sometimes, unfortunately, too often that you have this thing that like turns into tradition that is not backed by any shared authority like scripture. And that just for some reason becomes gospel. And I think that's dangerous. That leads to kind of like radical members of religions um, and and that's that's the issue with religion that I had in this show. Not religion as a whole, but that like unwavering, unsubstantiated, blind faith. For me, it was a really interesting kind of discussion in my brain because like I don't I don't think I have like a really good fully formed opinion. But um, assuming that. 
that, you know, you know, we don't know, you know, everything that was going on there, but just based on like what was shown in the documentary, that there are some shady things happening with the younger girl. And, you know, besides, I think that most of it, although it's like weird and radical, and I would never agree with it. And I don't necessarily believe that anybody else should have a, you know, be fully immersed in a lifestyle religion just based off of blind faith, even though you don't really like it. I don't believe that. I It was interesting to me to have this thought that like, it still is like a valid religion. And they're, this is America. They should be able to worship the way that they want to worship. And if that's that weird way that they worship that I don't personally agree with, then they, it's America. And you shouldn't find a reason to storm their compound which is essentially what the ATF did. Because more majority of the people disagree with the way that they believe or, you know, there is maybe misinformation about um, abuse of children. I agree. With that. I think what if there's actually abuse of children, that's that's where things should be. You know? <laughs> and then in the case of that one girl, I think that that's really toeing the line with child abuse because she like like in that laundry scene that's later on, she didn't have a choice and um so, you know things like that, but it gets a very iffy, but if it's just he has multiple wives and he's the only one that has sex and all the males can't have sex with their wives, maybe we disagree with that, but it's America. Oof, it's rough. All right. So just to finish up on this episode too, like one thing that really hit me was an interesting, and I, I don't know if it was true. I've been trying to find out because Jacob, obviously I know was a change name. There were He kind of embodied, if I understand right, he embodied at least two, maybe three of the surveillance team that were there kind of different situations that they all found themselves in, but him trying to, when they figure out who he is and then tell him to call the raid off and he's running down the dirt road, trying to stop these cars and all the vehicles coming through. And he's just flat out being ignored and told to go away and, you know, flat being basically, you know, hammered at the end of it by his, you know, superior. So for me, it was really interesting. I would love to know if that actually happened. Like if there was someone that was trying, one of the surveillance team was trying to stop it. I couldn't find anything in my research that it, that confirmed that or not. But you know but, what, Ian, yeah. you know what they needed? They needed a little girl waving an American flag. White House down. Would have called the dogs right off. Good callback. Good callback, sir. <laughs> Um, but JJ to your question. So there was, so from what I read and granted now I'm having to go back off memory and I'm not very good at going off memory, (laughs) but, um, I think his name was Robert Rodriguez, but he sat down. He's the one that was sitting down, you know, when Jacob's sitting down with him at towards the end of the episode and he gets the sinful Messiah paid or no, they find out from the mailman that a raid is coming. Mm -hmm. That's that is this Robert Rodriguez. Like he testifies of like having that experience. But if I remember correctly, he didn't go running down the road. Like it wasn't such an immediate, that's when the raid was happening, but he went to call it off and ended up going to where their tactical command center was at some university or something like that to call and try and get him to call it off. And then they kind of talk through the two other, I don't know what to call them. Like the ones that were over, the operation whether or not they should call it off so there there's some information if you are more interested in that like how that all played out but it didn't play out quite like that but at the same time he still sat down and had that situation where david said you know they're coming like they know that there's an attack coming and somebody tried to go and call it off it's good to know yeah ian you're right i'm reading his testimony so 
yeah, a little different than what Netflix actually what was showed, but pretty true to form. Well, I think David Koresh even says um, something to the effect of like the National Guard and the FBI or something like that, like they're never going to take me again, which I didn't understand. But I don't know if you guys have any insight on that. That's that's part of the testimony. So I was kind of curious why, if anybody knew anything from his history that would be like that, but I don't know. All right, so let's jump into episode three. Uh, synopsis for that, ATF agents in tactical gear storm Mount Carmel Center and gunfires exchanged, initiating a standoff between government officials and the Branch Davidians. After both parties call for a ceasefire, a wounded David Koresh phones in Ron Engelman at a Dallas-area radio station during a live broadcast detailing the deadly siege. The FBI takes over operations from ATF and lead negotiator Gary Nosner establishes contact with Koresh in hopes for a peaceful resolution. Koresh suggests that FBI broadcast his message to national media outlets before he could possibly surrender. Later, Nosner talks with Jacob Vasquez in an attempt to find out whether ATF or the Davidians fired first in the ambush. Perry Jones, severely wounded from the gunfire, says his last goodbyes to his daughter, Michelle, and his fellowship uh, before Koresh ends his suffering. ATF and FBI hold a press conference recapping the events of the raid and playing an audio tape by Koresh as promised. The sect packed their belongings and FBI agents prepared to escort them out. But in a shocking turn of events, Koresh makes a statement to Nosner over the phone saying they're not leaving. Dude, this is when things get wild. Crazy. Yeah. I think we need to start with this initial shootout. Yeah. So So many feelings. No one knows who started it, right? Well, no. Technically, no. So I think the DOJ is, their official story is that Davidian shot first, but ATF agents that were there on site do collaborate the idea that there was a squad of people who were, who their main job was to kill the dogs. And that they fired first and the Davidians responded. So there's a lot of back and forth there from what I understand. But it kind of sounds like that the ATF shot first. Which makes sense because law enforcement is a bunch of uh, meathead bullies who kill dogs. So keep that in mind. I was pissed that they killed the dogs. Right? Where's John Wick when you need him? Right. (laughs) It would all be dead if that was John Wick's dog. This would be over in... Episode three. I saw this news. Pretty, sure, pretty sure John Wick would have just shot David Koresh. <laughs> probably. Pretty sure he would have just shot everyone. Isn't that his go-to? <laughs> That's probably true too. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I, this is one of those things where I don't think this, and then obviously next week when we talk about the later episodes, there's a couple, there's two major points that we'll probably never know the truth of who started what and who did what. Obviously, it was a situation that, you know, even presented in this docuseries that was very tense, right? I can't imagine being in that facility and, you know, that being my home, uh, living there. And, he, you know, we see you see all these cops and ATF running up with weapons and setting up with pointing weapons at my home. And then my dogs get shot and not being trigger happy when a gun goes off, right? Or even being trigger happy looking at them going, well, you just run up on my property. It's time to start shooting. So I could see where either side could have started this whole gunfight thing. Obviously, it leans on police to not be the first to fire. That's rules of engagement. Yes. That's So if they did, that's not okay. But again, there's no real way because both sides have said it's not. It wasn't us. Well, and this is where I get frustrated with how the situation was handled because there's so many things that should have called this off before shots were ever even fired. Like the fact that they had somebody saying, they know you're coming, call it off. Is It should have never even happened. Like it should have never even started because that whole dynamic entry it, like you don't do that when you then when you know that somebody's coming. You know what I mean? Like especially when it's you just have like cameras. walking into a buzzsaw. 
And that's exactly what happened to him. I think it was four were killed and like 17-ish more agents were wounded. Like there's a lot of them that got hit. Asses kicked. Yeah. I, I kind of liked that. Yeah, that was, that was See, good. that I'm not okay with, Javier. <laughs> yeah. That I'm not okay with. Hey, if they're going to roll up on people's property and start shooting. I know, but we're talking about loss of life, period. I think, I think it is a citizen's right to defend themselves. I'm not saying they can't defend themselves. I just don't like like that loss of life. Like, Give respect to both sides. Sure, sure. That, and I'm not celebrating the fact that anyone died, but I'm saying that they got repelled. That's a big deal. That's a huge win for American citizens, that the federal government thought that they could just roll up and that four ATF engines died? Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. I'm not celebrating that people died or got hurt. But what would have happened is that a lot of Davidians would have been killed. And then what? We just celebrate that, that they're, but they're a bunch of wackos and that the government was just doing their job? No, because what I'm... Ah, never mind. No, I, I get what Ian's saying. I You know, it's one of those things where... The, the primary objective for this should have been for neither side to fire a shot. Sure. It should have been done correctly. And to Ian's point, the government should have, There's besides what we already talked about, they're also in a position of indefensibility. I mean, that place is a desert. The only thing that was there was the house, which gives the Davidians the high ground, the better positioning for a siege, to be honest. If it weren't for the just sheer firepower of the federal government and the fact that the ATF at the time is a military branch of the government they're not a police force they're the military they outgunned them by sheer numbers but the the actual tactics of it was terrible they were they were the davidians were in a fortified position it should have never happened and the fact that yes they repelled them and that's you know fine they were able to do that but it should have never gotten to that point did they really not bring any phones or communication is that a real thing oh i don't know i don't know yeah i can share the sentiment of though I wouldn't celebrate anyone dying because, and I think the, the, the radio guy mentioned this in this episode or a different episode that the ATF were military. They shouldn't have been there at all. Right. Yeah. It was a, because it, they were military, they weren't. It was illegal to deploy was, military troops on us soil against yeah. American citizens. Yeah. So for them to do that, where not only should they not have been there at all, especially when they, at least in the documentary, it seemed that they didn't have for sure knowledge that there were any illegal weaponry there, right? Is that, is that I right? I don't know. We don't mean... Okay, because I, I think JJ says they did. Did they? They did, they did know because what, what turned them on to the Ranch Davidians at first was a shipment of weapons that went to the compound it was it was scheduled to go to the compound and the atf still to this day tracks large shipments of weapons of any kind especially um, military grade semi-automatic anything that can be tuned up very easily handguns things like that so they were aware of that they were going to receive a package that's what triggered them to look into it upon further investigation they found records of the branch davidians those part of those that were part of the branch davidians selling modified weapons at gun shows um, while not entirely illegal, what they some of what they were doing with the weapons was turning semi-automatics into fully autom- fully automatics without permits, things like that. There, I think they mentioned it in one of the episodes that really all they needed to do was get a permit to change the weapons, and it would have never been a problem. But they didn't get the wep- they didn't get the permits. This so permit. they they were breaking a federal law. There was 
cause for them to be at the home. It was just more goes back to Ian being absolutely correct. There was more evidence of this should not happen at this moment in this way Mm -hmm. than for it to not happen at all, meaning they should have gone in with a warrant and done a search of the home and done it correctly and you know, based an investigation off of evidence and not just say they have weapons. It's going to look real good if we go in and get them. We just screwed up six months ago with Ruby Ridge. And if we pull out based on rumors, these kids that are supposedly being abused, that makes us look even better. Let's rush in, get it done because we're the the more powerful they'll submit. And that's the real crux of the situation. They thought we're the ATF, we're the federal government. We have a lot of guns. We're tactically trained. We're going to do better than this people that are in a house with weapons and who knows what they're going to do. They're going to come out. They're going to submit. It's the over the cockiness of, and this is true of not just law enforcement, of of anyone that feels like they have a more powerful force has that cocky feeling of, I can make this happen because we're just going to sheer overpower. When in reality, there's a lot more to tactics than just numbers and firepower. Mm -hmm. As they learned. So they had a warrant though. That's why they showed up to serve that warrant. It was a knock warrant. Right. Correct. It was a warrant, but it was a warrant to enter the premises, not siege the premises. Right. No, and, I'm not. I'm not defending law enforcement. But let me make that. No, I no, I understand. Not a single single thing that Javier says in this entire two parts will ever I, <laughs> ever be in support. Of law I do want to express the idea that like they showed up with a warrant. They were they had no intention of like kicking down the door without some legal precedent even though they just by being there they were breaking the law but i just feel like so they right had here. they had failed execution cuz the atf agent that they portray in this uh, jacob where he yeah he goes in speaks to him but i guess in the real story is he had a dinner with them why did it come to guns immediately instead of couldn't they have shown up and just knocked on their door and and had a group of people and approach it that way so my sentiment is I think it was approached severely in the wrong way. To JJ's point, the U.S. government, ATF, said, you know, we have more force, we have more power, let's go about it this way. That was the wrong decision. Do I feel bad for some of those ATF agents that were in that situation that probably didn't want to be there that died? Yeah, I think that sucks. And did the people above them make some poor choices and should they really be viewed harshly and blamed harshly? And should they have received that blame? I do agree and definitely think they should have. I just think it's a poor circumstance on both sides, extremely poorly executed in in that manner. And so I just, I ended up feeling bad on both sides and it never needed to get to that point. And that's really kind of the underlying theme for me of this documentary is that's the shock value of how did it go so far? So later on in this episode is where I really start to lose. And I, I not that I had much to begin with, but I lost all respect for David Koresh. You give a negotiator, uh, an ultimatum of if you get my this thing played on the news, then I will come out and I'll bring my people out. And then as soon as someone makes fun of you or that the news doesn't go the way you like it, mm-hmm. now all of a sudden your dumbass decides, no, we're not leaving because they didn't actually hear my message. Well, what you just did was cost everyone or you know whatever it was, 73 people their lives because you refused at that moment to do what you had said you were going to do out of pride, out of a sense of everyone needs to hear my message. Well, they heard what you sent and they did exactly what you asked. If they had come out, you know, that's 50 days worth of stuff we don't have to deal with, right? Or 47 days, 49 days. And that really pissed me off watching that. Like, ooh, it, it pissed me off bad. And I think 
it's kind of, as I'm just thinking about it now, it w- drives me nuts is on both sides, you have individuals who are in positions of power who made decisions and then decided to stick with those positions to the detriment of any, anybody below them. And I think that's really frustrating um, and happens all too often. And whether it's my force is bigger than yours or it's a pride thing where this is the way I want things to go and so I'm making this decision because that's what I want or what I've been told or what I believe is going to happen, even when there's a lot of evidence that points contrary to that, like a willingness to step back from your pride and go, hey, you know what, maybe I don't have the answer or maybe this isn't the right decision. I think could have on either side could have, I don't know, made it a less horrible situation, but it is what it is. I totally agree with that. And I share that. I've totally shared that frustration. But I also kind of went back to the idea that that is their religion. And just because he decided to go uh, go back on that word doesn't give the lot the ATF the go ahead to just murder everybody or you know whatever crazy decisions that they have. But they didn't. They didn't immediately after though. Immediately after, I mean, they waited another like forty-five days. Wow, how so. respectful and courteous. Yeah, good for them. Well, I mean, to be fair, the negotiators did try and actually were able to to get later on, obviously, people out. But I think, I I, I think Ian's right on the head, man. I think there's so many things that were failures on both sides, and it starts at the top and moves its way down to the point that it is. It just shows that you know. Leadership is an important thing, and good leadership's even. Doesn't more important. it get to the point where it just make? I end up thinking about it, especially starting this episode of David Crush after the message goes out and it isn't as well received as he wants. Well, I just wonder, does he sit there at night or whatever, thinking about, hey, is this the moment where I become a martyr? Is this is this is this that thing? And if it is, does he make that decision to say, no, I can't leave because? I need to die. And if some people die with me, it's for the cause. It's for our religion. That's what I wondered if he made that conscious choice to say, well, if I, if I don't go now, when, when am I going to die for what I preach about? I, I need to be correct. And just left me wondering about that if he made that conscious decision. That's just such an irresponsible leader. Like if you want to be a martyr, go be a martyr. But you can't make that decision for 75 other people. But he did. Totally agree. I got nothing. I got nothing but agreements on that. Um, I, you know, this is a point where I start looking at this show, and and there's been great acting and great portrayals to the point that I have a hard time sometimes talking about this without treating these characters like the real people, even though we know they're not. Like the acting across the board, even Rory Culkin, who played Thibodeau, who I'm not a huge fan of, if I'm being completely honest, just because he his delivery is so damn dry all the time, but. I believe everybody was so believable in this show and really just sucked you into everything that was going on. I, I really, really from an entertainment perspective and, and I realized that there was some very heavy things going on, extreme circumstances, but God, it was great acting across the board in this show. In this episode, I think other than maybe the final episode to me, this third episode was like the pinnacle of the acting in this show with the exception of a few pieces in the final episode. What'd you guys think? Yeah, I, I mean, I was so sucked into this. Like, like I, it played. How quickly did you watch it, Javier? You and Nicole. What was that? How quickly did you guys finish it? Like two nights. Yeah. Yeah. So we watched like three episodes a night. 
you know, yeah. we watched three because we were originally just going to talk watch three and talk about three and then we couldn't stop. So <laughs> that's what I did too. I was, I was like, I just got to watch the first three. And then we we're sitting there and it was like, next episode, in case she's like, she slightly pushes the button and I'm like, fuck, okay. <laughs> All right, let's just do it. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of said this towards the beginning, but I think if the acting wasn't as strong and, and believable and emotional, it, could this have fallen on its face and, and had a very interesting, true story feel to it? Sure. But if it wasn't portrayed in the right way, would it have sucked me in? I don't think so. And that's where, to, to JJ's point, I just think everyone hit it on the head. And that's where the... the the religious aspects we're talking about, the government aspects, the morality issues, we're able to talk about those things because the delivery of those of those subjects through these characters was very well done. And that's what got me to, I mean, I watch a show in a day and a half, like I couldn't stop. Yeah. I, um, like JJ was saying before, I felt like we were watching humans, right? Like I liked and disliked almost everyone in the mm-hmm. series. And that's yeah. how you are with just regular people. They make good decisions <laughs> and they make bad decisions. Mitch Decker. And there are a couple people that I just dislike. Yeah, like Mitch Decker. Just a bunch of bad decisions. Idiot. But there were people that I liked. Like I really liked Nosner. I loved Gary Nosner yeah. as a character. Yeah. And and even though he made some mistakes, they were understandable mistakes and some things that I can really get behind and understand where it comes from. So I really was rooting for him the whole time. And I just wanted to punch the commander and and Mitch in the face. Like I, I really did. It's like you have this guy that's giving you a solution to your problem and you just won't listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The commander needed a donut is what he needed. He would have away. <laughs> By the looks of him, he already had like several. <laughs> oh, shoot. I love it. You know, that actor's pretty good. I, we were watching a show, and I don't remember what it was, but that guy came up to Glenn Fleshler is his name. And I, I was like, oh, he's good. And I, so I really liked him, too. I Just such good acting. Anyway, I'll stop talking about it. But it was beautiful, too. The building looked just like the actual Mount it, Carmel building. The reconstruction of that, if you look at actual images of it, it's nuts at how they did it. The visuals are crazy. I mean, it's it was a really – it's a beautifully done show. I highly recommend going and checking it out if you have any, any interest in knowing what happened in 93. So, yeah, it's great. You will be sucked in. So – all right, guys. Well, we've been at this for an hour. We still have three episodes to go next week. Obviously, we'll save our ratings for the the second ver- episode. But you know, the first three episodes have been fun to talk about. Any guy, you guys, will have any final thoughts you want to share? We ready to just wrap up? I think uh, for the sake of my friendship with Ian, we should just wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, guys. So, yeah. no, Ian, go ahead. No, I was just thinking. That I had other stuff I was thinking about saying, but I'd agree with Javier. <laughs> <laughs> I, fully, I fully agree with javier and that's the first time i can say that i could do that we've done it we've crossed an important line in our friendship i uh, just want to say thanks to nicole thanks for jumping on today yeah, yeah thanks for having me yeah thanks nicole yeah this this whole series had just there was so many emotions that happened like almost so much so that I was like, maybe because of that, I shouldn't come on. Mostly anger <laughs> and disgust. Because because the feelings that I had at the end of these three episodes about the series as a whole was a lot different than by the time we were at the very end. So yeah, this, this yeah. is really cool to watch. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Ian, real quick, before we sign off, why don't you tell the people where they can find us? 
where they can find this man that's a really big gear change from like <laughs> i know right <laughs> um, anyways um you can find us anywhere good podcasts can be found stitcher uh spotify apple podcasts itunes um uh, google podcasts uh you can also find us on social media at what's our verdict podcast um on facebook and instagram on twitter it's at what's our verdict and as always, if you have requests or want to reach out to us, uh, you can get in touch with us at hosts at whatsourverdict.com. We'll love to hear from you. Miss anything? No, that's it, man. Beautifully yeah, appreciate done. Appreciate you, Ian. Yeah. I try. Perfection. Just like you yeah. and your beard. That's perfect. <laughs> that's that's right. too long. So this episode, uh, the follow-up to this, the, you know, our episodes four, five, and six, you can catch that next Tuesday at, we'll release at 11 a.m. Eastern time. We release, when we release TV episodes, they will be on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Eastern time. So check that out. Come join us for the conclusion, but we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, that's the verdict for now, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye now. Bye. JJ, Cinemagic, Cinemagic out. out. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>